Welcome to Tits Up. When things go tits up, they're broken. Tits up can also mean brave up and get on with it. This is what we do as mothers. When things are broken, we pull up our big girl pants and we wade through the muck. and we're discussing breastfeeding with insufficient glandular tissue. I guess I just thought maybe she didn't try very hard. About 2% or 5% of women physically can't breastfeed. And they just told me all I had to do was just feed and pump in between. But he was always hungry, so I just always had to supplement him anyway. They're not actually even getting a rest, so the whole thing becomes quite counterproductive anyway. Such a natural thing to want to do when I, when, you know, when I gave birth to him. I had hope that it might be different next time. When did you realise that you actually had this condition called insufficient glandular tissue, which is not a common condition? started um, expressing colostrum at about 35 weeks and I had little tubes of that that I took with me. Um, I, I, I was taking all the herbs, I was eating lactation biscuits, I was making green smoothies, I was doing so many different things to, um, to make that a different experience. This episode of Tits Up is sponsored by Booby Foods, all natural and organic foods to nourish you as you breastfeed your baby. So hello everyone and welcome to Tits Up. Our guest today is Dr. Marina McPherson and we're discussing breastfeeding with insufficient glandular tissue. Marina is a wife, a mother and a GP. That's a general practitioner. That's a family doctor here in Australia. After the birth of her first child, Noah, she delivered she developed, sorry, an interest in nutrition and adopting a more holistic approach in her work. Marina has since completed additional studies in nutritional, environmental and functional medicine and now enjoys bringing the benefits of all those modalities to her patient care. She firmly believes that our diet and lifestyle have a very significant impact on our health. Marina is particularly passionate about educating and empowering patients to take steps to optimise their health and live their best life. She lives with her husband and two delightful children in the Dandenong Ranges, um, which are just out of Melbourne, up the hills from me. And she loves to go for long walks and hikes, practice yoga, and when allowed, spend time with family and friends, enjoying good coffee and food in her local cafes. So welcome, Marina. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on to share this story because there are so many mums out there who have similar experiences you know everyone's you know breastfeeding journey is unique to them but it's really a hard one this one because when people want to breastfeed and that's what you think you're going to do your body's given grown this beautiful baby and birthed this beautiful baby and you just assume you're going to feed this baby from your body too and then sometimes it goes tits up (laughs) yes sometimes it does Yeah, so can you tell us about your experience with Noah, your first baby? What happened? Um, Well, you know, I was, you know, I was pregnant with my first baby. I was um, very excited. And of course, I was going to breastfeed my baby. And I I remember I was um, at my mum's house and I was having dinner and my mum was there and my grandma was there and um, my, my mum asked me if I was going to breastfeed, um, the baby. And, you know, I said, of course, I'm going to breastfeed the baby. Um, you know, there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to breastfeed the baby. And then my grandma shared with me that, you know, she had difficulty breastfeeding her, um, baby, my uncle, and she just didn't have enough milk for him. And she, um, ended up having some wet nurses, and when, um, when that sort of didn't work out anymore, my grandpa used to go and get raw milk from, um, you know, a neighbour down the road who would, he would bring a jar and get some raw milk and take it back. And that's how she raised my uncle. Um, and, you know, I, I guess at that point I thought, well, I guess I just thought maybe she didn't try very hard because my understanding at that point was that, you know, you could just feed your baby. Everyone can breastfeed their baby because that's 
what I um what I was what I was told and um certainly when we went to the antenatal class I remember being there with my husband um the midwife who was giving the education about you know birthing and she was talking about breastfeeding and she said you know um everyone can breastfeed their baby and if they can't it's because they choose not to or because they are not doing it properly and if you want to breastfeed your baby you know you'll be able to and you know that's that's what I kind of expected. Wow well there's this statistic isn't there that we keep reading that only you know I can't remember it's about two percent or five percent of women physically can't breastfeed and you know that statistic it just came from a speech from a physician in UK in 1935 with no evidence, no studies, and it's just somehow become part of the folklore. It's just yes. been repeated. Yes, I actually do remember her saying that a very small percentage, and she quoted about 1%, and, but it was said as a buy and buy and dismissed very quickly. And the message was that everyone can feed their baby. Mm. Mm. And, you know, we still hear that statistic bandied around now. Well, like you did with, you know, a midwife doing an antenatal class saying it was this tiny little percent. Um, And even then, even if it's only a tiny percent, when you're in that 2% or that 5%, that's devastating, isn't it? Yes. So, I mean, it it was quite a surprise to me when my baby was born and, um, you know, I tried, I tried to feed him and he was just crying. He was not happy. Um, nothing was happening. And so he ended up getting some formula from the midwives and it was just a tiny bit. It was just 10 mils, you know, he was, he was just, Hmm. um, little, but there was nothing. I was told there was going to be colostrum and there was going to be the milk would come in, but um, in the hospital, certainly nothing much was happening. And did you did you end up having some milk? Um, so at that point, um, I think the midwives um, gave me access to a breast pump. And so I would, I remember pumping in the hospital and at that point I had no milk. Um, and then they, um, they suggested I purchase a, um, a pump, a home breast pump. So I remember coming home and um, it was, I think it was the day that we, that, you know, I came home from the hospital, which would have been about day five. And I remember, um, you know, sitting on my couch and, and pumping and I got a little bit, I got about maybe like five mils, just a, a very, very tiny bit. And I was so excited because I thought, well, this is it, this is it coming in and, it was just barely, you know, landed in the bottle, but I was going, I was determined to feed it to my baby. And so I put it on the kitchen bench and then in his haste to help and clean up and sterilize the bottles, my husband thought it was just leftover formula and he, and he, oh, poured, it down. No. Oh. And he poured it down the sink. And well, that was just enough to, um, to completely unhinge me. You would have cried. You would have screamed. You would have thrown things, wouldn't you? I mean, how devastating. Yeah. Yes. Oh, no. After all that work and you get the five mils, which let's face it, five mils is important. Well, five mils is is liquid gold when you've had none. and Yeah. Yeah. And it's a dose of immune factors. It's, Mm. you know, it's all good, positive stuff. And then, oh, that makes me (laughs) want to cry. Oh no. So you're struggling with your milk supply. Where did, did did you reach out for help? I mean, as a as a GP, as a doctor, had you learnt much about breastfeeding during your medical school journey? No, nothing. I mean nothing. We were just we were just advised that breastfeeding is best and um women will breastfeed, but some um some may not be able to. Um, and some won't want to, and, you know, we just accept everyone's choices, but we encourage breastfeeding. That's, that's probably as much um, teaching as I received about breastfeeding. Wow. That's pretty scary, isn't it, to think that 
you know, this is pretty basic to feed a human being and that's all you've learned that, you know, that it's the best thing, but some women will choose to and some women won't. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, it's, it's important to encourage um, women and educate them that this is the best um, food source for their baby. But, um, but at the end of the day, we didn't, we didn't learn much about, you know, how it works, supply versus, um, de- de- you know, demand versus supply and, and all that, you know, only really came to me when I was pregnant with my own baby. And so I did reach out. I spoke to, um, I think there was a, um, like a, a telephone line, a, a breastfeeding support line. And so yeah. um, I remember ringing them a number of times. I guess mostly it was late at night when I was, when I was feeling quite desperate and quite upset that my baby was hungry and um, wasn't getting enough food. And all I kept being told was it's, it's supply will come. The more you feed, the more milk you'll produce. So all you have to do is keep feeding him. And so I would feed him around the clock, literally. And actually what I noticed for me was the more I fed, the less milk that I got the next feed. Um, it just didn't work like that for me. So if I had less, if I had a two hour break between feeds, then I would have less milk than if I had a three or four hour break, which I, I, I didn't really get to four hour breaks, but I found the bigger break I had, the more milk I was able to produce. So I just felt like I was doing it all wrong and I didn't understand why it wasn't working and they just told me all I had to do was just feed and pump in between. But he was always hungry. So I just always had to supplement him anyway. Yeah. And that's, this is what I find really hard for women. You know, you breastfeed your baby, then you pump, then you have to, you've got bottles to clean and bottles to sterilize, but your baby's awake for his next feed by the time you've pumped anyway, if you do have a, you know, a proper low supply. So you never get a physical break yourself. You're just constantly doing this. So it's actually not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Most it was, t- for most people. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of work because I would feed him. Then I would pump and it was okay while my husband was home for the two weeks, because while I would pump, he would feed, he would give him a top up. But after he went back to work, I had to feed him top him up then pump then get ready for the next feed and somewhere along the way you had to settle that baby so that he could have a little nap in between you know like there'd be no yeah just just no yeah and like that's that's what I see when I see mothers I mean as a lactation consultant these poor women are working so hard and it's they're not actually even getting a rest so the whole thing becomes quite counterproductive anyway because mentally you're going down the tube physically you're you're not getting any rest yeah and then you're getting more emotional mm, mm, yeah 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 so how long did you know I mean you obviously kept breastfeeding and kept topping up for as long as you could um yeah so I kept um I kept um feeding him and topping him up for for a long time um probably about six months I kept, I kept that going. And then probably around about then, I mean, he only got a very small amount from me. Um, and then I would top him up probably with about 150 mils each, each feed. Um, and then at some point he started refusing the breast. And I guess when he started refusing the breast, it gave me permission to, to stop. Um, I would still pump and I would collect all, all my pumps into one bottle and I would supplement and I would give him that at night, um, you know, in his bottle. So, so at about, at about six months, I stopped physically um, breastfeeding him. Um, And I probably wanted to earlier just because it was so time consuming to do all those three things. And I found that I wasn't able to enjoy him as much as I wanted because I had I really wanted to to feed him. Um, and so when he stopped wanting to take the breast, then it gave me permission without guilt to, you know, to not do that anymore. And then I would just pump and give that all to him as a feed. What a marathon. 
I mean, you deserve a gold medal for that, especially with a first baby. You don't actually know any different, do you? I mean, you're doing the best you can do. You're doing an incredible marathon of a job, doing all that feeding, pumping, settling, blah, 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 blah. And you're not actually, or someone else is holding the baby while you're on the pump. It's it's quite, you know, like it's, it must be devastating for mums to go through that. And, you know, I know I've just full disclosure, um, I, Later on with another baby, I became Marina's lactation consultant. So, you know, you did have that different experience. But I, I think it's so hard. And when you try and get help and it's not supportive of what you're trying to do, I mean, there are some tips for women, um, you know, that you just pop your baby back on the breast after you've pumped or whatever, just just for a little bit of extra baby baby knows about the pump or if the baby's had the bottle if you pop the baby back on after the bottle can just encourage that baby and then we'll get on to how you manage the second baby so how did you must have had a lot of grief around it though oh I did I had a lot because I really 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 wanted to breastfeed it wasn't even about knowing that breast was best it was for me such a natural thing to want to do when I when you know, when I gave birth to him and um, whenever I'd go out to the library or story time or anywhere, you know, you'd see mums just breastfeed so easily. And, um, you know, I just always felt so sad for me and for my baby that we weren't able to do that. And I guess I also felt judged. Um, So there was, you know, that component as well, but mostly I just felt sad that I couldn't have that experience. So there was a lot of grief. Um, around that and I think people don't acknowledge that you know they they acknowledge oh yes mothers feel guilty but I don't even know that it is guilt because I think grief has you know totally overrides that all those feelings of grief I don't think I mean guilt's about when you let somebody down it's you haven't let anybody down you've you've tried your hardest you've done your absolute best you've given all that you can give so guilt's not even warranted it's it's about I think you know, that whole grieving process, um, how did you get through it? Um, I guess, you know, as he got older, um, there was less and less emphasis on that and and we did other things. And um, I guess, you know, when he was about 13 months old, um, I was talking about my experience to a friend um, and she was saying, oh, well, you could just... you." you could, if with appropriate support, maybe you could relactate and still have that experience. And I think that's how I got in contact with you Um, initially is I wanted to know if if that was an option. Oh, Um, I can't even remember that call. (laughs) Yeah. I suppose you see so many different people and I, you know, and I have helped women relactate, but, you know, because of what you'd gone through. Yeah, yeah. And so yes. it was actually in that phone call. So we had a conversation and we, you know, y- you helped me see that it wasn't really an option at that point. But but this was the time that you've t- you mentioned the SNS, the um, supplementary nursing system, and this is how I found out about it. And so this is how I knew about it for, you know, when I had my my next baby. So That's I think right. how yeah. I got how I got through it is that I had hope that it might be different next time and right. that you know at the all I could do at the moment is just pr- that that I actually um did do my best and all I could do is focus on his nutrition in the now yeah and his and the positives that you were giving yeah. him you know because you're a beautiful mum and you know there are mums with beautiful connections with their babies however they feed them um you know, and it's just such a horrible cliche. And did you, when did you realise that you actually had this condition called insufficient glandular tissue, which is not a common condition, but it certainly is a powerfully devastating, it's almost a disability, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, so not until I was pregnant with my second, um, it was my, with my second baby, I was, um, I was doing... Um, my antenatal care at the Anglers Hospital and I mentioned um, quite early so 
maybe when I was about 20 months pregnant, that uh, 20 weeks pregnant, that I had um, problems feeding my first baby and um, that I wanted to see the lactation consultant and that I wanted to really kind of get some tips and, and get some advice as to how to um, approach this situation a little bit differently. And so I, I, I was better pr- prepared to feed this baby because I already knew that I had problems. Um, so they, they were really good about it and they um, got me in to see a lactation consultant while I was still pregnant. Um, and when she assessed me and when she had a look at me, she told me that I had insufficient glandular tissue. Right, yeah. And then you called me and then we made plans and yes. plans and backup plans. <laughs> yes. So that um, I guess I was, you know, really surprised. I actually hadn't heard of that Um um, myself and so I then had to read up on it and understand it and even though it was quite a shock to get the diagnosis I guess it also gave me understanding of what happened in the past and it wasn't the fact that I was doing anything wrong which I think I probably still thought that I had was doing something wrong that it hadn't quite worked out um so um I think that's that is when I called you and we had um, we had um, systems and backup systems, and I ordered some SNS, so um, the nursing line systems, and lots of different backup plans. So, shall we just explain to people? You know, this condition, insufficient glandular tissue or IGT, it's often called. It can be called breast hyperplasia. Some of the red flags around that are maybe little or no breast development during puberty or pregnancy, because most women have a bit of extra breast development as they become pregnant. You know, it's often one of the first symptoms that their breasts start changing or becoming uncomfortable or they seem to grow. You know, I've got two daughters. One had these massive boobs that kept growing while she was pregnant. The other one didn't have this. She's got, you know, the the widely more widely spaced, more tubular shaped breasts. And these can be Sometimes they're quite large breasts, sometimes they're quite small breasts, but um, by large, I don't mean gigantic, but often it's the tubular shaped breasts that may have, um, like I said, very little glandular tissue, which is your milk making ducts. And those can be red flags that you ask to see a lactation consultant when you're pregnant, you know, because if it's your first baby, you haven't lactated before, you don't really know what's going on. you know, you're just getting to know your body as a pregnant woman, as a um, new mother um, there. And then the SNS, this tubular device, do you want to, t- you can tell people what that is. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, um, so an SNS is um, a, a supplementary device that allows you to, um to feed your baby whilst you're breastfeeding, but with an alternative milk source. So it's like an upside down bottle um, that I used to hang around my neck. Um, And it has little, um, two little sort of one millimeter in diameter tubes that come out of either side of the bottle. And so what you would do is you would, you would attach them or you would slip them into your, the baby's mouth um, while the baby was breastfeeding. So as the baby was suckling, um, it would stimulate the breast and get the idea behind that it, the baby is getting um, my breast milk at the, at the same time, but also getting um, a flow of the alternate milk source that's in the SNS in the, in the little bottle. Mm. So it's it means really hard to explain. I know, but they've got that little tube milk. against your nipple that they're getting extra milk from, which means that you're not actually doing using a bottle as well. And it's hard. I bet you wanted to throw that thing against the wall a few times. And I did a few times, Pinky. <laughs> I really actually did. It was, it was the best thing, but it was a really difficult it was really difficult to make it all work because every time you wanted to feed, you couldn't just go and feed. You had to make sure everything was sterilized. Everything was filled. Everything was ready. It still wasn't, um, you know, how I pictured it perfectly in my mind, but it was, it was just, you know, it was just so much better to getting me where I wanted to be. Yeah, and you're getting that constant breast stimulation. Yeah. 
as you're doing it and the baby's feeding at the breast and then gradually you weaned off that supplementer, didn't you? I did. Um, yeah, so um, when did I wean off that? I think I probably weaned her off that after about a year. So when she started, when she started eating um, and when the, the breastfeeding wasn't her main source of, you know, of her nutrition and she was eating food, then anything I gave her was just top up. And I was still able to, so um, my second baby, Alice, she wasn't, she wasn't a big eater. Like I, I don't think um, she wasn't a big eater. So all I had to do was give her 150 mils of, of the, I used donor milk um, for my supplemented milk. So all I had to do was give her that over the course of the day and the rest of it, I fed her the rest of her nutrition um, or the rest of her milk. I, um, it was from me. But I think it was because she wasn't a big eater that I was able to to do that. Um, so after about a year, I was able to wean her off that and just just feed and she would eat. Mm. I remember somewhere about eight months or so you visited me and Alice wanted a feed and she just went <laughs> and, you know, rooted <laughs> towards your breast, just like every breastfed baby does and was clutching at your shirt like, it, I remember you saying, I think at night time, well, you weren't using the supplementary nursing system no, all the time by then. And you, and I remember you saying to me, I feel like a real breastfeeding mother now. I mean, you're a breastfeeding mother all the time with both children, but it was just that, you know, you could actually go out and breastfeed once she was having some family foods. And that was pretty delightful, I reckon, pretty exciting. Yes, that's true. At night, I wasn't using the SNS, so she would just suckle when she wanted a feed. And um, often, you know, if we were going out during the day, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring it with me. Um, yeah. Mm. And I think that's pretty, you know, I mean, your goals, and I think for any mum, like changing those goals, and also there's a little bit more breast development with each pregnancy too, you know, and then understanding you know that there are some herbs there might be some foods all those sorts of things that might help and I know when you came out of hospital you just slept and fed and skin to skin for a couple of weeks didn't you you know getting yes. in that support to start establishing that milk supply yes I mean the second time around was very different for me because I was very I was very differently prepared. I started um, expressing colostrum at about 35 weeks and I had little tubes of that that I took with me. Um, I, I, I was taking all the herbs. I was eating lactation biscuits. I was making green smoothies. I was doing so many different things to, um, to make that a different experience. Mm, you worked, worked so hard, but that's it. You don't know the first time around. I mean, skin to skin and skin to skin is helpful but you yeah. don't know you know and you're, and you're trying so hard um you know to do all those things and having that little bit of colostrum would have just alleviated that anxiety in the beginning too yes yes I had yeah that that definitely alleviated some anxiety that I was able to um you know give her some milk or some food straight away when you know when I knew that I wouldn't necessarily that I that I most likely wouldn't have produced anything for her in those first few days mm. yeah so you really yeah you had your backup plans and your backup plans for your backup plans I remember. now with the donor milk now we're not saying to people you must use donor milk you can't use formula we're not saying that at all um, because again you need to make your choices and sometimes that's not an option you know I've got a daughter with IGT who had her first baby in Dubai, where there are no such things as milk banks, there's no such, you know, breastfed babies, um, there's no legality for donor, it's not even legal to share to milk share, whereas even here, I mean, you might have a, a girlfriend who you know will collect milk safely, you will know her medical history. Um, I know we put a shout out for um, donor milk. And again, you know, I had said to you, I'm happy to put a shout out, but you're going to have to screen it. It's, you know, that's your yeah. responsibility. So, and again, mothers have to take responsibility. What sort of diet do you want your, you know, your milk donor to be using? And there are milk, there are milk banks in Australia. Yeah. Now in Queensland, there's one where you can actually buy milk that's been sterilised, that's been 
um, screened and all that. So if as a mother you're prepared to do the screening, and again, it was pre-pandemic times, yeah, probably, you know, the, the risks wow. were a lot different to, even though we're not, fi we're finding, you know, the studies that are coming out now, and they're not big studies, but they're studies showing that um, breast milk will have, if the mother has had contact, you know, will have antibodies to COVID. But again, that's a big consideration. But um, yeah, so we're talking pre-pandemic times. What, what precautions did you... Newborns need to be fed around the clock and the mama milk machine does not stop, day or night. The average baby requires at least nine hours of hands-on care a day and that doesn't include all the extra tasks of washing, cooking and basic self-care, like simply having a shower that goes with a new addition to your family. As you breastfeed and care for your baby, feeding yourself is often the last thing you can manage. And this is why I, Pinky, I'm an International Board Certified Lactation Consultant, created delicious booby foods. So far, booby brickies and booby brekkie to nourish you as you breastfeed your baby. As a nourishing snack, an analysis by Victoria University Melbourne found that Pinky's booby foods can be a helpful nutritional complement to a healthy, balanced diet. And because we know that everything mothers eat will be passed to their baby through breast milk, booby bickies and booby brekkie are made from all natural and organic ingredients with no preservatives or additives. You can download my free ebook, Making More Mummy Milk Naturally, and you'll get 15% off any purchase when you order booby bickies, booby brekkie, or any of the carefully curated breastfeeding accessories at www.boobyfoods.com.au. Use the code TITSUP at checkout to receive your 15% discount. Well, I actually didn't even know about donor milk again. So this was something that was mentioned to me by that midwife at the Anglers. She she told me, she spoke to me about my different options and um, donor milk was one of them. Um, and I just did some research into it. And there was one hospital in Melbourne that was, you could get donor milk through them. But when I rang, they said that it was only limited to really preemie babies, sick babies. Um, you know, I didn't qualify um, to receive their donor milk. Um, so they couldn't help me. Um, but I found out about um, um, a breast milk sharing sort of um, platform. And um, I guess I, I was just... I was just interested. I was just looking at um, different options for me and I that's something that I did want to try. So um, I, I guess I had quite, quite stringent criteria for myself about which milk I was happy to accept. Um, and so I would ask, I would ask all sorts of questions in terms of medication use and diet use. And then I wanted um, to see, you know, the women, um, the women's um, antenatal blood tests that they would have had for their hepatitis B and their all their screen. And, you know, everyone was so kind and so willing to share that with me. And, and I knew that was quite invasive um, to ask them, but I think because everyone was there for, the right reasons people you know we all wanted mm. to feed our babies the best that we could and some women have the opposite problem to me they had so much milk that they were getting engorged and um they were getting recurrent mastitis so for them um expressing and donating the milk was i guess not just an altruistic thing to do but a therapeutic thing to do and everyone really was very lovely and kind and I've never had anyone refuse to share their details with me when I asked. And um, so that's how I was able to feed my baby. And sometimes it was really touch and go. Like I remember a time when I only had about a hundred mils of breast milk left in my fridge and my brother and my mom, they went to Geelong to pick up some milk for me because that wow. was the milk that was available at the time. And, and they got home just in time for the next feed and, 
you know that's how amazing how- should we tell people Geelong how long is that? that's almost two hours drive away isn't it yeah that's almost two hours drive and they did that and I did that for about three months and after three months I found this one lady who um, I I did know from um, like a parenting group with Noah and she just had a baby who is about two months older than Alice and um, she she had so much milk and so she would pump for five minutes and she would give me my 200 mils of milk. And, wow. so, and so she was actually, she lived right next to my husband's work. So every day he would stop by her house, collect the little milk um, bottle and he would bring it home. And so she, so she helped me feed Alice from when she was about three months till the time she was about 12 months old. Um, oh, and I'm wonderful. still fr- I'm still friends with her today, and we're actually going for a walk next week. So she's you know she's a really a really lovely woman. Oh, that's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. No, I think women who do share milk, they're supportive. I've had other mums who you know perhaps got breast cancer and really sad circumstances that that you know or or like you you know they've got a um, a breast issue of some sort and the mums who donate are always the kindest mums and they don't mind you know I think as new mums often we feel we're intruding by asking people those questions but as a mother caring for your baby you have absolutely every right you know if you want that mother you know if you want milk from mothers that perhaps aren't eating dairy for instance because you've got a dairy intolerant family or um yeah you want to know what medications you you don't want the mother drinking alcohol if she's donating milk there's going to be all sorts of things that you may or you know what what feels right for you around your own baby and you're advocating for your baby so I think you have every right to do the screening that you want to do yeah and you know most people most uh, every woman on on that platform is feeding her own baby so Mm. they're obviously doing their best to minimize all those exposures themselves um, but sometimes they have to take medication and sometimes they had to take antibiotics and um, but they were all very wonderful and I found everyone to be very honest in in disclosing all of those things mm. um, because everyone understood you know yeah and, and yeah, it was, they, it was yes. really lovely yeah it's a beautiful um yeah, beautiful experience. And once upon a time, or like you mentioned your grandmother using wet nurses. Was she in Australia at the time? No, no, this was in Russia. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, because, I mean, culturally there are people who use, I actually wet nursed my friend's adopted baby from Haiti. Oh, I was wow. breastfeeding my own daughter, much as breastfeeding my two daughters. <laughs> she had been to the doctor with her newborn and I was minding her older child and she arrived at my place and said um, she'd been at the GP. Now she's very blonde and she had this beautiful, beautiful black um, Haitian baby with long fuzzy hair, even though she was only a few weeks old, most stunning little baby. And she said her baby started to grizzle while she was at the doctor's and she thought, what would Pinky do? And she could only think of one thing. So she lifted her shirt up and put her baby on the breast. (laughs) She tried relactating, but somehow it didn't work. And she tried a supply line and her, um, yeah, supply line, I think we called them in those days. We had to get one from the States for her, but her toddler would keep tipping over the, you know, the breast milk that was on the coffee table that she was trying to tip into the supply line thing. And it ended up being really difficult. So she would actually put her baby on the breast for comfort. But she, when she got to my place this day, I said, she's clearly hungry. Did you bring a bottle? And she said, oh, no, she didn't. And I said, well, look, all I can offer is breast milk because I don't own a bottle. So we had a discussion then and it did end up that, you know, I would breastfeed her baby at time, you know, to give this little tiny fragile baby some breast milk. And I don't know, it just all worked out. But that was, you know, I just it just didn't, I, I mean, I guess that was in the 80s. A lot more people were sort of just, um, I don't think there was a thing about donor milk so much. Yeah, my first baby was in hospital at the children's hospital and I took in a preserving jar of milk because that's all I had to take, you know, to contain this milk that I'd expressed overnight for him. And they said, your baby won't get this. It'll go to the premies. And that was 
before HIV, you know, so they did have a milk bank at that point and the babies would get, the primary babies would get breast milk. So things have changed off and on, you know, as to what what people thought, Um, you know, the medical protocols around donor milk, what's happening. But, you know, if you can get milk from a milk bank, that's great. If you've got a good friend, that's great. If that's not an option, that's fine too. So I had um, I had boxes and boxes of formula in my pantry as well for if in the event I wasn't able to get donor milk, you know, it was always there. So it was definitely my option C. <laughs> yeah, well, you sort of, you know, option A is breastfeeding at the breast. Option B is express breast milk. Yeah, according to the World Health Organization, option C is donor milk. Option D is formula, you know, like there's, there's a yeah. range of options and we're very, very yeah. lucky we can get yeah, you know, clean lucky. options, really. Yeah. We have options, yeah. So your experience with Alice, did that, uh, and then again, the other story was when you, I don't know whether she was closer to two, and you rang me one day and you said, how, or you emailed me or messaged me or something and said, how do I get this kid to stop putting her hand <laughs> down my actually- shirt? She was actually close to three, Pinky. Oh, right, right. Yeah. I she was a toddler. Yeah. Oh, so she loved it. She would just keep going, booby, booby. And <laughs> it was it was just something she wanted all the time. And I breastfed her um, until she was two, um, I think she was two years and four months when I, when I weaned her off at night um, because I got to a point that she wanted to feed all night long and I wasn't sleeping and it wasn't fun anymore. So we stopped doing that. Perfectly and, right. Yeah. And then she wanted, so then um, I was happy going um, and feeding her during the day. But then every time she got upset, every time anything happened, she just was using me really as a dummy. So at probably just before she was three, um, I just felt like um, it I just felt like it was the right time for both of us to wean, and we did. And I think that's probably around the time I, I contacted you. <laughs> yeah, because there are gentle ways to wean your child. But, I mean, what a lovely breastfeeding experience Yeah. after such, you know, trauma the first time around and that, you you know, you were able to comfort her at the breast, you were able to keep up those immune factors because even with a toddler there's still immune factors. It's all, it's all good. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much you give your child I mean what what is there three million germ killing cells in a teaspoon of milk so even if your baby's getting a little bit because I think a lot of mums when they do have to supplement are told you might as well give up because it's no good anyway or you're wasting your energy or you know people discourage mums when they know that they're supplementing um yeah I think I think that that is that probably was my experience um it's just it's just I think um the the probably a a lot of a lot of um advice is you know formula is is almost just as good so if you're if you're if you're um using it anyway um there's probably no point in 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 breastfeeding um and certainly in my experience, I've had women who were um, advised by their specialists to stop breastfeeding because there was no benefit really in breastfeeding after 12 months, um, which, which I found, you know, interesting that, that women were given that advice. Um, but I always encouraged women to breastfeed if they were enjoying it and if they were still enjoying the relationship and um you know, letting them know that actually the World Health Organization encourages breastfeeding to two years and beyond. And um, you know, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be shamed or um advised to stop it if if it's mutually beneficial for mother and baby. Mm, mm. As long as that mother wants to breastfeed, that's fine. Yeah. And I I like to say every breastfeed is a success because however much milk you can give your baby or however long you manage to breastfeed there's great you know I don't like to say benefits because it's normal but it certainly is you know beneficial to the baby and to the mother for their health so you know it doesn't matter how much or how long or whatever um I mean it matters but it matters to that mother that's what I should say yeah your baby your body your boobs and if you want to breastfeed 
or support. So what an awesome GP to go to <laughs> if you've got a little baby. <laughs> so how's that experience of your own coloured your, you know, how you support mums in your practice, in your medical practice? Um, I think my experience has um, enabled me to um, be very open to women's experience. And when they tell me that breastfeeding is hard for them, um, I really listen. I'm not dismissive of that. I try and understand what is it that's difficult. And, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm usually quite validating to their experience. And I tell them that breastfeeding is hard. Uh, it, it doesn't always work um, smoothly like we want it to. And um, that I think the key is to get the right support. Mm. Yeah. And I think also, I think it's really important to recognise where, um, where every mum is. So even though breastfeeding is best, and we all know that, I think, you know, sometimes women put so much pressure on themselves to breastfeed. Like um, in my original story with, with Noah, you know, um, feeding, pumping, bottle feeding, all those things. It, it was really, really hard. It was really, really stressful. And I think, um, I think women just need to recognize that yes, breastfeeding is optimal, but if it comes at a point of being so stressed that your milk supply is actually reducing, or you're so stressed that you're not actually enjoying your baby, or it's, increasing your tendency to to go into postnatal depression that it's also okay to stop and to find a different solution mm. yeah yeah and, and you can only support women where they're at anyway because if you don't accept that woman and her journey she's never coming back to you for any support anyway yeah you know it's still someone just sent me a beautiful meme this morning and said this reminds me of you and it was a you know, a former client, and it was about how many doulas does it take to change a light bulb? And it was like your light bulb, your, you know, um, it, you don't need any doulas to change your light bulb. Um, you know, it's your, what was it? It was your ladder, your light bulb or something like that. But it was um, about the doula doesn't change the light bulb. And I guess anyone supporting you with your baby isn't doing it for you. They're not in there doing that so you have to do what's you know do, and every mother's doing their best if you found that I've never found a mother who wasn't doing her best no every mother is doing their best but it's about getting the right support yeah to to do their best because they might not know what they can do with some more information or with a different technique or with yeah sure something. yeah so it's it's getting the right support for that mother to enable her to do her best Hmm. And to reach her personal goals, yeah. what, what yeah. matters to her. Yeah. So those would be your messages, wouldn't it, to share with mums. So I ask all mums, because we all have tits up moments, and it can be anything, anything funny, you know, hard, embarrassing. Have you got a personal tits up moment with your children, either of your children or both of them, that you could share? Um. I was thinking about that. That's that's. I mean, you have to go back into uh, this um, big kind of uh, bubble of memories and see if you can sift some <laughs> them out. But I think um, I think I wanted to share a couple. So um, when Noah was about three, um, he was always such a um, such a um, I guess well-behaved is not is, is probably the only way I can describe it. You know, he would always kind of do, um, if he understood the point of what I was saying, he would always kind of understand it and, and um, he wouldn't kind of misbehave. Um, so when, um, he, when he was about three, he started acting really um, differently for him. He would kind of be... Um, pro provocative and he would do things um, on purpose that I asked him not to do and he would like um, there was one time where my brother came to visit and he stole his belt and he hid it and he wouldn't give it to him 
Um, <laughs> and he hid it in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> and he wouldn't give it to him. And so he was acting really strangely. Like, and I didn't understand what was going on because sometimes he would be completely fine and sometimes he would um, act really oddly. Like he was quite hyperactive and um, quite defiant. And um, there was one time that my brother actually said to me, because he was staying with us at the time, he said, your child has ADHD. And I was like, oh, I know it seems that way, but it's quite unusual. Um, and, you know, at one point he actually took a chair and threw it against the door, which was, again, quite out of character. And so he would have days like that and he would have days where he was completely fine. And one time I was reading a book to him, which he loved listening to books, and he was sitting on the couch with me and he was just um, pacing up and down the couch over me. And I said, why don't you just sit down and listen? He said, well, my, my, my brain, my, my head wants to, but my body won't let me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and so, and so I was really at a loss as to what was happening. And this went on for about a month. And then I thought, um, and then I thought, oh, I was, I was giving him this dessert sometimes that I would make. And it was, um, it was like organic cacao, like a, a teaspoon of organic cacao and some yogurt and honey and chia seeds and some berries. And I would make it for him occasionally. And so I thought, I wonder if he's reacting to the cacao. I wonder if that's what's going on. And so I cut it out and then I tried to kind of go back and see if there was a pattern to when he was having that and when he would act in that way. And so then I just cut it all out and he went back to completely normal and he never really acted like that again, except for if he ever had cacao or if he ever had a little bit of dark chocolate, he would again act in that way. And I guess we, we still kind of think about it and we still kind of um, think about that really in horror as to how, um, how it really affected him and it demonstrated to me probably for the first time how food can affect different children and different people in such different ways. Um, and had I not thought of that, you know, I just, I guess we could have gone for months and years. Having a difficult, having, commas, child. having a difficult child, seeking different diagnoses, going to different specialists. And it was only really by chance because I was talking to a friend who said that her child was reacting to something else. And then I started in my head going through all the different foods that Noah was having. And luckily we, we found that after about a month. So that was, that was something we, we still kind of think back to because it was the only time ever that Noah took a chair and threw it against a wall. But and it's pretty isn't it? Because... You know, you don't expect a three-year-old to do that, but if your three-year-old's always been fairly easygoing, yeah. what, 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 what's going on? And you hear things about, you know, three-nagers or terrible twos or whatever, and it's easy to dismiss or it's easy to pathologise their behaviour when it could be relatively easily picked up. And, yeah. 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 That's, yeah, that's a really interesting one. Yeah, yeah. And, you, you I mean, you're working with nutrition as part of your medical practice too aren't you so yeah so and that was sort of the early days when I was just kind of getting into nutrition so I didn't it didn't kind of click very quickly in my head um but now I mean now when 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 people come and see me with kids with behavioral issues that's the first thing I look at is you know what they eat yeah. and um often you know just cleaning up their diet dramatically improves improves things and it's not always unhealthy foods is it like you know if it's foods that are high in a chemical called salicylates for instance yes. or you know cacao is not a not a bad food it's it's just you know it can be really healthy foods that can have some of these no and he impacts. has grown out of it so he oh he, that's good he yeah. has so like um in the last sort of maybe four or five years he's been able to handle, you know, some some cacao and some chocolate without having such consequences. But for, for years he wasn't ever allowed to have any. How old is he now? Sorry, he's 12. Oh, oh, oh goodness. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think look, a lot of those things are probably dose related anyway, aren't they? So the smaller the child, the more impact. Yeah, absolutely. And he was only having, I was only putting like a teaspoon of raw organic cacao. So I, like, I, I, I was so mortified to to think that I was actually causing what was happening. And my body <laughs> won't let me. Then, <laughs> my brain wants to. Yeah, my body won't stop. <laughs> my brain yeah. wants me to stop and listen, but my body won't let me. <laughs> yeah. I guess it was the, at that point that I realised that he he had no control over what he was doing because he really wanted to. He he wanted mm. to sit down and, and listen, but he just said, my body won't let me. That's a great, that's very articulate for a three-year-old. He was, was very articulate. Isn't it? Yeah. 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 So I've just got, do, do you mind telling people where you actually practice or is this something we can't do? Oh no, I, I can um I can tell you where I practice. So I practice in two um practices. So I practice in whole medicine um in Rosebud on the Mornington Peninsula, and um I practice in East Bentley at Mackey Road Clinic. So for people in Melbourne, yeah, it's okay. They can come and ask for you. I want you to come back to our area and practice somewhere close to me because I'm not driving to Rosebud. <laughs> Well, all you have to do is put a good podcast on. That's right. <laughs> and then it's an easy drive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, um, I just ask all mums, um, what's your best tip for the mother you want to be? Um, I think probably just to listen to your heart and to to connect with your with your child and to connect with your baby and to do what feels um like it aligns with your values i found that in the very early days and months when i first became a mum i was told by lots of really well meaning people that i shouldn't be doing this or i shouldn't be doing that or i should be doing um so and so and it really didn't align with what I felt intuitively like I wanted to do, but I guess I didn't have the confidence as a brand new mum to follow my, my gut and my intuition. And sometimes I would try and follow their advice and it just didn't sit right with me. So I think, um, I think you just need to, to do what feels right for you and parent from connection and love um, and, that would be my advice. Yeah, so you can trust your baby and you can, or your child and you can trust that connection between you and it's, and don't let anybody shoot on you. Yeah, and, some, and I guess, you know, what I realise is um, a lot of the time kids push boundaries or, um, you know, in quotation marks, misbehave. They're actually trying to find out, do you still love them? when they're doing this I find that that's probably sometimes what they're trying to find out and I think I think there's a way of of letting kids know that they can't can't do what they're doing they can't actually continue with that behavior but yet you will love them in that moment through that moment and so it's just really important to let them know in that moment that yes you love them not necessarily by saying that in the moment, you, you know, mm. but but by being loving and respectful in how you speak to them in that moment where where they're at their worst because they still want to know that they're loved even when they're at their worst. They do. And often there's a quote, isn't it, and I've seen it attributed to all sorts of different people, that when your child is behaving um, the least loving, it's when they most need love. Yeah, something like that. That goes like that, and and it's reaching out for connection a lot of the time, or that they feel um, confused or upset inside themselves. So that's you know when people say it's behavioural, the behaviour is a communication. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's beautiful. So thank you so much, Marina. Hey, are you on Instagram or anything like that? No. I didn't think you were. I thought no. But no. if you were, we have to tell people. Yeah. So 
No, I'm not. I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> okay. So thank you, Marina. This has been really, you, really Pete. encouraging and supportive. So, yeah, so thank you for sharing. And thank you. It's lovely to see you and to chat with you. Tits up, ladies. Pull up your big girl pants. We can do this. We are mothers. In the spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional owners and custodians of this country and their connection to land, water and community. We pay our respect to them, their cultures and customs and to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tits Up. This podcast was produced by Dave Stokes. For more information, connections with our guests and special offers from our show sponsors, please pop over to my website and check out the show notes, www.pinkymccabe.com. I would love it if you could please share the love by leaving a review. Five-star reviews will help other mums to find this support and information too.